Greetings, everyone. I'm Vicki Vasquez, Director of the Clinical Specialist and Scientist section here at ASHB, and thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature from the exceptional programming from the 2021 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, best practices, and leadership advice at the world's largest gathering of pharmacists. Just to take one step back, we all should appreciate the impact of hypercholesterolemia in the United States. It is an important major disease, and we focus on treating hypercholesterolemia with a therapeutic lens to lower LDL cholesterol. Why is this? Well, we want to care for our 28 plus million Americans who have hypercholesterolemia. And that estimate of 28 plus million Americans really is a rough ballpark picture because it really only defines hypercholesterolemia using total cholesterol, which is a total cholesterol of 240 or greater. I think all of us probably would agree that that's a very loose definition of hypercholesterolemia and doesn't capture a lot of patients who have elevated LDL cholesterol as their primary problem and that may be despite a high total cholesterol. We know that there's a strong association between cholesterol values and its contribution to ASCVD, and that the higher your total cholesterol, the higher your risk of ASCVD. But when we really analyze the different types of low proteins that contribute to total cholesterol, we have high confidence that LDL cholesterol is the dominant form of atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, the dominant form of cholesterol that causes atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as really a primary cause. There are some other lipoproteins that are important, such as non-HDL cholesterol, which reflects ApoB. But in clinical practice, we use LDL, which is a primary component of ApoB, to inform our day-to-day decisions. And really, our guidelines in the United States focus around LDL cholesterol. So that really is our important atherogenic lipoprotein. We also know based on high confidence from multiple clinical trials, that large evidence base supports that LDL lowering with statin-based therapy not only lowers LDL cholesterol, but also reduces cardiovascular risks, which really is the overarching goal of treating any patient with cardiovascular risk, especially those with hypercholesterolemia. This focus on LDL cholesterol is not just a figment of clinical trials, but it's actually proven evidence from all the clinical trials, the robust, large, prospective, randomized placebo-controlled trials, which have evaluated placebo versus statin therapy. And an analysis of putting all these trials together has been done by the Cholesterol Treatment Trialist Collaboration. They are a reputable, independent organization which does meta-analyses on multiple diseases, and this is some of their work related to cholesterol. What we see here is plotted on the y-axis, the proportionate reduction in major vascular events seen in clinical trials versus the LDL cholesterol that was reduced in these clinical trials or the magnitude of LDL lowering. First, if we see in the top right corner, the relationship that has been demonstrated with statin trials versus placebo or statin versus control. In this particular analysis, 21 studies evaluated that relationship and really showed that there was a strong associated reduction in major vascular events with LDL lowering. And we get this sort of for every millimole per liter, which is about 39 milligrams per deciliter of LDL that's lowered in a clinical trial, there was an associated 22% reduction in major vascular events. So that is the philosophical sort of grounding philosophy. But we also see all the other trials that are represented here, the TNT trial, IDEAL, PROVE-IT, A to Z, and SEARCH trials, were studies that looked at high-intensity statin therapy 
versus a lower dose, mostly moderate intensity statin therapy. So comparing more LDL lowering to less LDL lowering. And when you put all these trials together, we see in that diamond that there's a strong relationship. The more LDL was lowered, the more event rate was lowered. This is sort of tit for tat as it may be that there's that strong relationship and predictable relationship seen in clinical trials, really lending strong evidence that lowering LDL cholesterol should be our primary focus of therapy to reduce cardiovascular risk in our hypercholesterolemic patients. These data were appreciated by the 2018 AHA ACC multi-society guideline. This is the 2018 cholesterol guideline of which it was a huge group of people. Not only AHA and ACC contributed to this, but also American Pharmacists Association contributed to this. I was fortunate enough to be their representative on the writing committee. I wasn't the only pharmacist. There was another pharmacist here. You look at this group of people, it really is a multidisciplinary approach to evaluating data and coming up with consensus guidelines. So Dr. Kim Bercher and myself were the pharmacist representatives. One of the primary messages going along with that LDL hypothesis that lower LDL is better to reduce cardiovascular risk is carrying forward a recommendation from the 2013 guidelines. And that recommendation is that there are four discrete patient populations called statin benefit groups, where evidence clearly demonstrates that these populations benefit from statin-based LDL lowering to reduce cardiovascular events. These four statin benefit groups are the same four statin benefit groups that were highlighted and framed in 2013. They start off with a secondary prevention population, which are our patients with clinical ASCVD. That's group number one. Then we have three other groups, which are primary prevention groups. We have patients with LDL cholesterols that are high at baseline, 190 or greater. Then we have primary prevention patients with diabetes, type 1 or type 2, between the ages of 40 and 75. And lastly, we have other primary prevention patients between 40 and 75 years of age who have elevated ASCVD predicted risk. And this is using the pool cord equations calculator. That range is between 5% and up to 19.9 or increased risk defined as intermediate or borderline risk. And then of course, those patients who are 20% risk or higher. So really 5% and higher are in that last statin benefit group. If we focus in on secondary prevention patients, that's where we've had some innovations in newer medications. But before we actually discuss those, let's actually just take a look at what's recommended based on evidence in these 2018 guidelines. This is the algorithm for secondary prevention patients. So it starts off with imparting and recommending healthy lifestyle changes. But also there's a decision question. Is your patient with clinical ASCVD, which is a secondary prevention patient, considered very high risk for future events or not very high risk for future events. And if the answer to that is no, you go to the left of this algorithm. Then you evaluate your patient's age. And some of this is perhaps not highly important because the core recommendation, really regardless of age and regardless of whether somebody's very high risk or not, is to start with high intensity statin therapy. If you do have a patient who is older than 75, you have the option of maybe using moderate intensity statin therapy, but high intensity statin therapy is still acceptable. The strongest evidence are in patients less than 75 years of age on the left here who are not very high risk. We have a lot of data supporting the treatment starting with high intensity statin therapy. And if you do not achieve one of two things, a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol, which is the cholesterol reduction you should get with high intensity statin therapy. That's your goal LDL reduction. But also if you don't achieve an LDL less than 70, what is recommended in these guidelines, if either of those two fall short is to further intensify LDL lowering through maximizing statin therapy and thereafter adding azetamide. What is the difference for the patients who are considered or categorized as very high risk is on the right. You still start with high intensity statin therapy 
you still would intensify if you do not achieve the 50% reduction in LDL from baseline, or if you don't get LDL less than 70 as the threshold, you still would add azitamide after maximizing statin therapy, but we have evidence supporting PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies in this patient population. If you're wondering who is considered very high risk, it is your patient population who has two or more forms of clinical ASCVD, things like a recent ACS event, prior history of myocardial infarction, other than the incident ACS event that was listed first, prior ischemic stroke, or symptomatic peripheral arterial disease. Clearly, those are all forms of ASCVD, so multiple forms is a patient who's very high risk. We also have patients with just one form of ASCVD who have multiple high-risk conditions. These include everything from advanced age to hypertension, diabetes, smoking, chronic kidney disease. These are basically the things that cause ASCVD. So if you're putting this together, you may think, wow, most people are gonna be considered very high-risk ASCVD if they have a history of ASCVD. And that pretty much is true based on newer data. There was an analysis that was published in 2021 which was a market scan database analysis looking at claims. And they identified over 16,000 patients with a history of a major ASCVD event. And then they looked to see if they met this definition of very high risk. And lo and behold, 94% of patients who have one form of ASCVD meet the criteria for very high risk ASCVD. So I think we can probably look to that algorithm and in most people, 94% of them go to the right and assume that they're gonna be very high risk. I think that's good. So basically high intensity statin, maximize that statin, then if needed add azitamide and thereafter if needed add PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies. Now that decision to use azitamide ahead of a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody in the guidelines was influenced based on the cost of the PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, which were significantly higher than what they are currently. I mention this because guidelines recommend using azitamide first because of cost reasons, but some of our data that support PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies did not require the use of azitamide. So you may see in clinical practice, clinicians bypassing the azitamide addition. Formularies may not like that because prior authorizations may require the use of azitamide before going to a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody, but that's an interpretation of the guidelines versus evidence. We all probably are familiar with the different intensities of statin therapy, high intensity statin therapy, which is strongly recommended in secondary prevention patients as our start includes two statins, atorvastatin and rosuvastatin at their two highest doses. And this is because the average response in a typical patient is a 50 plus percent reduction in LDL cholesterol. So whenever you use a high intensity statin regimen, the corollary goal is to achieve a 50% reduction in LDL cholesterol, being that the goal should be to lower cholesterol aligned with what is expected with that regimen. Moderate intensity statin therapy includes all of the other statins. All seven statins are dosed at moderate intensity at their FDA recommended starting dose for adults. And so this includes drugs like simvastatin, pravastatin, and the other three that are available, including atorvastatin and rosuvastatin. If guidelines recommend and you choose to implement a moderate intensity statin therapy, that correlated goal should be at least to achieve a 30 plus percent reduction in LDL cholesterol to get the typical response. And you may see the logic in that is if we follow the CTT analysis, you know, if you want to get the benefit of LDL lowering, it's not good enough just to be on the drug. You need to get the therapeutic response that is typical to reduce ASCVD events proportionally. For primary prevention, here is the other algorithm in our guidelines. This includes the 
three other statin benefit groups. So in primary prevention patients, after emphasizing and recommending a healthy lifestyle, we see in the top right corner that the first statin benefit group are your patients with baseline LDL cholesterols of 190 or greater. These are patients that definitely have high risk for future ASCVD events, and what is recommended is high-intensity statin therapy. There are further recommendations in the guidelines, such as intensifying therapy if you do not achieve at least a 50% reduction and an LDL of less than 100, so we see another threshold there. And there are recommendations for adding other non-statin LDL-lowering therapies. The third statin benefit group is also to the right, and these are your primary prevention patients with diabetes, where there is a strong class one recommendation, anything in green is a class one recommendation, to start it with at least moderate intensity statin therapy in your patients 40 to 75 years of age. And that really is regardless of their level of cardiovascular risk. But upon a risk assessment, if you deem your primary prevention patient with diabetes to be at higher risk for ASCVD. And there's clinician judgment in here. It could be based on the presence of major ASCVD risk factors or a high pool cord equation tenure estimation for future risk of ASCVD or risk enhancing factors that are specific for diabetes. A clinician can choose to use high intensity statin therapy. This is a class 2A recommendation simply because there are fewer data evaluating high intensity statin therapy in primary prevention patients with diabetes. But aligned with the cholesterol treatment trial is collaboration association of LDL cholesterol lowering with cardiovascular risk that supports more aggressive treatment in your primary prevention patients who are, have diabetes who have additional cardiovascular risk. Lastly, we have our fourth statin benefit group, patients who are primary prevention between the ages of 40 and 75 with LDL values of 70 to 189. In this patient population, you need to do the pool cord equation, which is a 10-year risk estimation for future ASCVD events. If that risk estimation is less than 5%, then your patient's low risk and they're not recommended for statin therapy. But if you have somebody who's borderline or intermediate risk, that means that their 10-year pool cord equation calculation is between 5 and 19.9%. Moderate intensity statin therapy is recommended if a patient has additional risk-enhancing factors, things that influence cardiovascular risk that are simply not part of the pool cord equation. Now, there's stronger evidence when patients are intermediate risk, meaning 7.5 to 19.9, and less evidence when they're a borderline risk, which is 5 to 7.4%. But this really requires clinician and patient engagement and careful risk assessment, because it's not as simple as automatically put a patient on a statin it's more look deeper at additional risk enhancing factors. And I'll share with you the list of what that is. There's also in this population, if risk estimation is uncertain, the option to do a coronary artery calcification score to further guide your decision-making. If a patient has a pool cord equation, 10-year ASCV risk estimation of 20% or higher, they're considered high risk. And what is recommended with a class one recommendation is high intensity statin therapy to achieve that goal reduction in LDL of at least 50%. And so we got the first primary prevention patients within the second statin benefit group, those with LDL cholesterols of 190 or greater. But don't forget that one, it's actually one that slips through the cracks often. But I do wanna get back to these risk enhancing factors, things that support treating a patient who is in that fourth statin benefit group. These are all things that we know based on science, based on evidence, contribute to ASCVD risk but are not represented in the pool cord equation. They're simply not one of those patient-specific characteristics that are required to be put into the calculator. These are important and they're new, and this aids our clinical decision-making. Things like a premature family history of early ASCVD, 
So that will be in a primary relative, such as a parent or a sibling. We have patients whose LDLs aren't 190 or greater, but they're creeping up there. They're between 160 and 189. Or perhaps if you don't have LDL because it's a non-fasting test, you can use non-HDL cholesterol, the correlate or equivalent value, according to this risk-enhancing category, would be an non-HDL of 190 to 219. So you can use that if you don't have fasting values. Patients with metabolic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, chronic inflammatory diseases, such as lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, HIV. We have patients that have specific biomarkers that may be elevated like LPA, which is an emerging causative factor for ASCVD. If that value is greater than 50 milligrams per deciliter, that is a risk-enhancing factor to sway clinicians and patients towards treatment if they are borderline or intermediate risk primary prevention. Patients with persistently high triglycerides, South Asian ancestry, and last but not least important are some conditions that affect women, such as premature menopause before the age of 40 or pregnancy-associated complications such as preeclampsia. We know that all of these things are not in the pool cord equation, but we know based on evidence that these populations have higher risk of ASCVD. So if you're uncertain on whether to treat or not, look for these things. And in my opinion, if one or more is there, I'm comfortable in recommending statin therapy in the absence of a contraindication, but especially if multiple ones are present, that should clearly influence both patient decisions and also the patient-clinician discussion that may occur preceding the selection of a statin. I do wanna just clarify some terminology because I've used a goal percent LDL lowering and then a threshold for two of our four statin benefit groups. So please keep in mind the overarching goal is to reduce cardiovascular disease, but we have a tangible LDL goal. It's a percent more goal to actually not just achieve an LDL value, but to reduce LDL by a certain percent. This applies to all four statin benefit groups. The percent LDL goal is 50 plus percent when using a high intensity statin regimen, or it's 30 to 49% LDL lowering when choosing a moderate intensity regimen. And that's just from the statin LDL lowering perspective. It applies to all four statin benefit groups. But we also have the addition of a threshold, and this is based on evidence, more literally an application of the clinical trials, that in those who are clinical ASCVD or patients with baseline LDLs of 190 or greater, we have thresholds. We don't just want to get a percent reduction in LDL cholesterol, but we also want to make sure in clinical ASCVD that LDL clearly is less than 70. And if it's a primary prevention patient, with LDL cholesterols of 190 or greater, we want to clearly make sure that their LDL is less than 100 in addition to achieving the percent LDL lowering. Some other guidelines use different terms for goals. They have LDL values, but our guidelines in 2018 use the term percent reduction in LDL as a goal and also a threshold LDL value for two of the populations as key triggers to have clinicians intensify LDL lowering therapy. We know that statins lower LDL cholesterol quite well, above 50% if you use two of them at their two highest doses. We have bilast sequestrants, azitamide and bempedoic acid, which give modest reductions in LDL cholesterol. But when we do look at FDA-approved PCSK9 monoclonal antibodies, of which we have alirocumab and evolocumab, we see that they're robust in lowering LDL cholesterol up to 72%, depending on which data source you use. I usually say 50 to 60% is the average reduction you'll see with a PCSK9 monoclonal antibody in most patients. We do have some other therapeutic entities, such as nicotinic acid, fibric acid derivatives, and omega-3 fatty acids, which really are used for triglyceride lowering which is important to consider, and we will touch on that. But let's talk about some of the newer medicines because many of us may not be familiar with bempedoic acid because it is one of our newer therapeutic entities. Bempedoic acid is a new 
agent that lowers LDL cholesterol via a novel mechanism of action. Benpidoic acid is a citrate lyase inhibitor. And what does that really mean? Well, similar to statins, it targets the cholesterol production pathway in the liver. Where it's maybe a little different than a statin is benpidoic acid is a prodrug. It is activated in the liver via very long chain acetyl-CoA synthetase, which is an enzyme only located in the liver, which converts benpidoic acid to its active form. And then what does it do in the liver? Well, it inhibits conversion of citrate to acetyl-CoA, which is the top part of the statin pathway. So it basically gives less substrate for the statin or the, for the cholesterol production pathway, the same pathway that statins target. And by using this drug, either as monotherapy or in addition to a statin, patients can achieve LDL lowering. This drug you may not have heard of because it was launched and approved just before the COVID-19 pandemic in February, 2020. It's FDA labeled and indicated for patients who need additional LDL lowering as an adjunct to diet and maximally tolerate statin therapy. But importantly, there's only two populations where it is FDA labeled. One is patients with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, and that perhaps are your patients in the second statin benefit group, those patients with baseline LDLs of 190 or greater, but also in patients with established ASCVD, which are our first statin benefit group, our secondary prevention clinical ASCVD population. This is an oral medication given 180 milligrams once daily with or without food is acceptable. It is marketed as two different products. There is a monotherapy product with just benpidoic acid, and there's also a fixed dose combination product, which includes benpidoic acid plus azitamide. So both of those are new brand name only medicines that are at just our disposal for LDL lowering. Now, because it's a new novel mechanism of action and a new therapeutic entity, it's important to look at the safety profile. And we all know that drugs, when they first are approved, sometimes have a certain safety profile, and then those side effects get a little bit more clarified as new drugs are used more in practice. But what we know right now about this drug is it does have the ability to increase serum uric acid. So hyperuricemia has been reported. The mean increase in uric acid is 0.8 milligrams per deciliter, which in some patients with a history of gout could be of concern. There's also been associated tendon rupture and some other things such as atrial fibrillation, anemia, increases in liver enzymes, and even an increase in creatine kinase. Those are less commonly reported. And I think ongoing safety data will clarify whether those are a significant problem or not. But right now they are reported in the product labeling. Of note, it's important to determine when you have a patient who's on simvastatin or pravastatin, if you're considering bempidoic acid, it's important to ascertain this drug interaction. There is a drug-drug interaction with those two statins and bambidoic acid. And it's not a drug interaction that precludes co-therapy, but it is a drug interaction that requires mitigation, which means limiting the maximum dose of the statin to 20 milligrams with simvastatin or 40 milligrams with pravastatin. So we can't perhaps exploit those drugs to their maximum dosages if used with benpidoic acid. There are no dose limits with atorvastatin or rosuvastatin though. How well does benpidoic acid work? The previous table that I showed you showed 15 to 17% reduction with benpidoic acid. And that was when evaluated in combination with statin therapy. There are a series of clinical trials, regulatory studies that got this drug approved. And they're called the CLEAR trials, or CLEAR Harmony, CLEAR Wisdom, which evaluated 
bempedoic acid added to typical dosing of statin therapy. And that's where we get the 15 to 17% LDL reduction. Sort of modest, not really highly impressive. But when we look at the clear serenity and clear tranquility studies, this looked at using bempedoic acid without a statin at all, either as monotherapy when added, or when added to azitamibe. And that's where we see about a 24% reduction in LDL cholesterol. Importantly, when you look at fixed dose combination of azitamide with bempedoic acid versus nothing, we see that that at least gets moderate intensity LDL lowering up to 36%. So as monotherapy is an add-on, we're looking at low intensity, I guess, reductions in LDL cholesterol, but when teamed up with azitamide can get into that moderate range. This is a new medication, so we do not know, even though it lowers LDL cholesterol, we don't know beyond a shadow of doubt whether it lowers cardiovascular events. We know that the addition of azitamide lowers cardiovascular events a little bit. And we know that PCSK not monoclonal antibodies lower LDL cholesterol a lot, so they lower cardiovascular event risk quite a bit in proportion to the LDL lowering. But we still don't know about pentadoc acids. So there's a study ongoing called Clear Outcomes, randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial looking at patients who have high risk for future ASCVD, be it having either secondary prevention status, meaning established ASCVD, or having other high-risk conditions. These patients all have documented statin intolerance, which means they some of these patients actually are on a statin, but they're on low doses. So they're either on no statin or low-dose statin. And these patients have elevated LDL cholesterol despite their background therapy, and they're being randomized to bempedoc acid or placebo, with the primary endpoint being cardiovascular events. So we'll know whether, based on the results of that trial, whether lowering LDL from bempedoic acid reduces events. Another drug that we have that's available is evanacumab. And this is recently approved in February 2021, so very recent this year. It's a fully human monoclonal antibody that targets angiopoietin-like 3. So when you target or, I guess, blunt the effects and bind up angiopoietin-like 3, what happens? Well, you actually have a decrease in lipoprotein lipase and a decrease in endothelial lipase. Overall, when you do that, you reduce everything. You reduce LDL and you reduce triglycerides. You also reduce HDL cholesterol, so keep in mind that one. But you may not see this drug a whole bunch. It was FDA approved in February for one population, which are homozygous FH patients. Now, homozygous FH affects approximately one and a half a million people in the United States. So we're talking about maybe, you know, up to a thousand patients in the entire country. These are patients with a severe form of familial hypercholesterolemia. Typically, their baseline LDL cholesterols are five or 600, and they typically may go also for LDL apheresis for their treatment and require multiple drug therapies. But this is a new entity just in that population. It's an IV therapy given every four weeks, administered over 60 minutes. We see the adverse effects that have been reported. There's some warnings about teratogenic effects, so embryo-fetal toxicity and hypersensitivity reactions because it's an infused monoclonal antibody. But it does a pretty decent job at lowering LDL cholesterol in the approved population, which is homozygous FH, almost 50%. There are some studies looking at patients with what's called severe hypercholesterolemia or heterozygous FH, most of them. And we see that data indicates about a 30 to 47% reduction in LDL cholesterol. Not approved for that population, but there is some data in the literature in New England Journal that demonstrates that efficacy. So bottom line, only for homozygous FH, which is not a very common patient population, at least currently. On the horizon is a drug called Inclycerin, and this is an exciting new one. This is a small interfering RNA therapy. What does that mean? Well, it actually changes your messenger RNA so that your body produces less PCSK9 protein. 
So in a way, it targets PCSK9. The other drugs that we have available right now, the monoclonal antibodies bind up PCSK9, but this drug actually causes your body to not make that protein. Now, we don't really need PCSK9, so it really isn't a problem because it only does bad things. What it does is it actually hinders our LDL clearance receptors, PCSK9 does, and it renders or allows our, makes our LDL cholesterol in our blood higher. So removing PCSK9 through monoclonal antibodies or through inclycerin by just not producing the PCSK9 protein enhances our LDL receptors in our liver and results in lower blood cholesterol values. This drug was submitted to the FDA immediately prior to the pandemic, but was evaluated during the pandemic for secondary prevention patients or patients with familial hypercholesterolemia. And it wasn't rejected by the FDA, but it wasn't approved because during the pandemic, the messaging was that the FDA needed to tour the manufacturing site in Italy. And there's probably some other things that they wanted to look at during a pandemic wasn't conducive to that. They currently have a PADUFA date of January 1st, 2022, where the FDA has to render a decision. I'm optimistic that the FDA will approve this drug. It's novel mechanism of action, so they have to do their due diligence, but it has an interesting delivery mechanism. It's a subcutaneous injection, 1.5 milliliters, injected by a healthcare professional, not self-administered, at month zero, month three, and then every six months thereafter. That's the dosing that was put forward for review. And why is that? Well, there's been LDL lowering studies showing that in heterozygous FH, there's about a 40% reduction in LDL cholesterol in that population. And in those with clinical ASCVD or other high-risk categories, about a 50% reduction. So that's exciting. That's a good amount of reduction. And if you think about the delivery, you're assured to have adherence. There is an ongoing outcomes trial, just like with bempedoic acid, and there's the need for this. And this one's called Orion-4. The other regulatory stars were Orion-9, 10, and 11, I believe the numbers were. But Orion-4 is an ongoing cardiovascular outcomes trial, looking at about 15,000 patients who have clinical ASCVD. On top of their background of statin therapy, they're being randomized to placebo or in glycerin to see whether the LDL reduction from this product is associated with a reduction in vascular events, or cardiovascular events. So we will wait first approval of this drug, and then the results of that outcomes trial. Let's put some of this together by looking at a patient case. So we have patient SK. What do we know about SK? SK is a 65-year-old woman with a history of ASCVD, type 2 diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, and dyslipidemia. The mental picture that you should have about SK is that this woman's at high risk for something bad happening in the future. Her risk of death is high based on those diseases. She's being treated with low-dose aspirin, metformin, and pagliflozin, both for her diabetes. She's on omosartan and metoprolol succinate. And for her hypercholesterolemia or her dyslipidemia, she is on rosuvastatin 40 milligrams daily. Now, fortunately, SK has commercial insurance. She reports that she's adherent with all her medications. And this is confirmed by not just patient report, but looking at her refill history and her dispensing record. And those indicate that she is adherent. She's not a smoker, she doesn't drink alcohol, and she's seen a dietitian multiple times. She reports that she is following a low sodium and low saturated fat diet. So those sound like good things for somebody who really needs them. When we look at the efficacy of her 40 milligrams of rosuvastatin, it is resulting in the following lipid panel. Total cholesterol is 150, HDL is 40, LDL cholesterol is 60, and her triglycerides are 250. EGFR is 54, so she has some kidney decline, probably in stage 3 CKD. Her diabetes is well controlled with her two medicines. That's great. Her blood pressure is also well controlled. Her BMI indicates she's overweight, but she's working on her lifestyle. Here's the situation. 
the prescriber would like to prescribe a prescription omega-3 fatty acid product, but a prior authorization for that omega-3 fatty acid product is required. So they're, you know, considering an over-the-counter fish oil as a replacement for omega-3 fatty acids. When we look at this patient SK, we really have to analyze what will be the benefit of adding an omega-3 fatty acid to this patient. Now, looking at her high-intensity statin therapy, rosuvastatin 40, according to guidelines, she's got her LDL less than 70. I would maybe confirm I would want to make sure she's also got at least a 50% reduction, which is important. We want both of them achieved. If possible, I'd like to get that. But right now, her LDL at least is less than 70. But she's having sort of this figment of a metabolic picture. Her triglycerides are 250. You know, we know that when triglycerides are above 500, we're concerned about pancreatitis and we use triglyceride lowering medications specifically. What about this patient who has moderately elevated triglycerides? Would an omega-3 fatty acid product help her? And would using an OTC product be just as good as a prescription product? Well, I think, you know, when you're trying to intervene for patients like SK, it's important to know that statins are wonderful. And even though they lower LDL cholesterol and they're proven to also reduce cardiovascular events, there are some residual risk that is present in patients like SK. We look at three landmark trials on the left here, which were evaluating statin versus placebo in secondary prevention patients like SK. We see that the event reduction in cardiovascular events with statin therapy was significantly lower than what was achieved with placebo. And so there's benefit of statin therapy there, but look at those blue bars on the left. They're still quite high, meaning there's some risk for future cardiovascular disease. The miracle trial, people still had a 15% event rate. So there's room to improve perhaps. On the right are our studies, which looked at non-statin therapy plus statin versus statin alone. And we see that combination of statin with non-statin in purple results in fewer cardiovascular events than in people on statin alone but still those purple balls are high. So there are some patients that remain at risk for future events simply because of this residual risk phenomenon. Maybe it's part of the triglycerides being high, or maybe LDL could be further reduced. Maybe some of these people with apparently lower LDL values didn't get their 50 plus percent reduction. So all those things should be play into your brain. What the question though in SK was about omega-3 fatty acids, and we know that patients usually like these treatments. There's more favorable response to omega-3s from a patient perspective than maybe towards statins. That's not correct, that it shouldn't be that way, but that's just sort of the society we live in. But we do have, you know, three categories or three different types of omega-3 fatty acid products. The first two are prescription only. One is omega-3 acid ethyl esters, which is available as a brand name product, but also as a generic. It contains two kinds of omega-3 fatty acids, both EPA and DHA, which is casapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid. Dose four grams once a day or two grams twice a day. Very similar to icosapentethyl. And this one actually has mostly a brand name product, but there's been an emerging generic. What's different though, is it only contains EPA. So only one of the two omega-3 fatty acids that lowers triglycerides, no DHA in this one. Same dose, it needs to be given with food just like the other product does. And these are two prescription products. They're FDA labeled to lower very high triglycerides of 500 or greater to minimize the risk of pancreatitis. But importantly, when we look at what the over-the-counter fish oils, they appear similar to the omega-3 acid ethyl esters in that they contain both EPA and DHA. The dosing is, I have question marks here because good luck based on which product you pick and if there's no regulation for actually what our over-the-counter supplements have to have in them. There's voluntary regulations that people uh, that 
supplement manufacturers undergo, but there's no FDA oversight on the manufacturing process or the purity. So we don't exactly know what dose is appropriate for high triglycerides. Probably I would recommend taking them with food, but we don't know as clearly because they're not ethyl products like the prescription agents are. We do know that when you add DHA to a omega-3 fatty acid product, what happens is that there's an associated increase in LDL cholesterol. We haven't 100% known whether that increase in LDL cholesterol is problematic. It's not seen with EPA-only icosapent ethyl, but it is something that is important to consider. Now, there is something also different with icosapent ethyl. We have outcomes data. The guidelines that I referred to didn't have the REDUCE-IT trial available. The REDUCE-IT trial, which evaluated EPA-only icosapent ethyl, which is our omega-3 fatty acids, that was evaluated in the REDUCE-IT trial, which was an outcome trial. This is not referred to on our 2018 AHA-ACC multi-society guidelines simply because the REDUCE-IT trial got published after that guideline was finalized. So we can't go to our standard of care guideline for any guidance on REDUCE-IT. But what's the deal with REDUCE-IT? REDUCE-IT was a study, a prospective, randomized, placebo-controlled trial looking at over 8,000 patients who either had clinical ASCVD or were primary prevention diabetes patients who were considered high risk for cardiovascular disease because they had additional cardiovascular risk factors. So when you look at this patient population, what should be screaming out at you is they need to be on statin therapy. And they were in this trial. All of them were on statin therapy. They were on statin therapy, but had two things in their lipid panel that was, you know, maybe one was good and one was of concern. What was good is that their LDL was between 41 and 100. Now the median was 75. And I would argue that the population that had clinical ASCVD should clearly have had their LDLs less than 70, but you know, that range does include less than 70. But the thing that was concerning was these patients had elevated triglycerides, not very high triglycerides, but elevated. Their fasting triglyceride values were 150 to 499. And that 150 to 499 had a plus or minus 10%. So we see the range really being some people were down to 135 to 499. The median was a little bit over 200. So these patients had modestly elevated triglycerides with their high risk cardiovascular status, despite statin therapy. So they were randomized in this trial to answer the question of, is there any long-term benefit in reducing cardiovascular events with the addition of EPA-only icosapent ethyl? So patients were randomized to icosapent ethyl four grams a day or a matching placebo, which was mineral oil. Mineral oil because icosapent ethyl is a clear capsule. So the omega-3 fatty acids in icosapent ethyl are not oxidized because they remain clear. And the FDA endorsed and actually recommended the use of mineral oil as the placebo because it would look the same. And because of some data that mineral oil probably is safe, we use it as a treatment for constipation. So we know what we might expect there but it wasn't thought to really have any negative effects on cardiovascular health. There's some skeptics and some marginal data that state that mineral oil may inhibit the absorption of a statin and may slightly change your lipid values, but probably not that significant. So we had what I consider a reasonable placebo. In this study, they evaluate the incidence of a primary cardiovascular event, and we see it plotted on the right. We see patients with an event versus years in the study. And this study went almost five years, 4.9 years on average, and we see a clear separation between those randomized to placebo or icospentethyl. Those on icospentethyl are in the blue line, and there were significantly fewer cardiovascular events. We see the separation, the curve starting a little bit after a year and getting broader and broader as years go by. This was associated with a 25% relative risk reduction 
in major cardiovascular events that was considered highly statistically significant. The number needed to treat, if you look at that difference, the net difference is about a 5% difference in cardiovascular events. So that number needed to treat is a low number, a favorable number of approximately 20. So rather large benefit. This was with EPA-only icosapentethyl. Now there is another large study called STRENGTH. You know, don't be fooled by that title. It wasn't necessarily a strong study. I mean, the study design was reasonable. It used omega-3 carboxylic acid. It was approved by the FDA, but never marketed. It is an omega-3 fatty acid product that contains both EPA and DHA. So this one is almost, you know, it's got the stuff that the over-the-counter agents usually have, the EPA and DHA. It's the same two omega-3 fatty acids that are in the prescription omega-3 acid ethyl ester product. This similar product just was never on the shelves despite an FDA-approved indication. They were waiting for the results of this trial. This is an outcomes trial. It looks very similar to reduce it. That it evaluated patients with established ASCVD or diabetes with additional risk factors or they had another category of high-risk primary prevention patients. So all these were high-risk for a future cardiovascular event. They were all on optimal statin therapy. They all had LDL values that were, you know, in a similar range to reduce it. Patients were required, though, to have elevated triglycerides. This range is slightly higher than in reduce it. It was 180 to 499, but about the same. The median was in the low 200s also. They also had to have HDL values that were considered problematic, less than 42 in men or less than 48 in women. This study had a run-in phase of about four to eight weeks where you stabilized a patient's lipid profile at baseline, and then they were randomized to the prescription EPA and DHA omega-3 carboxylic acid arm, which was four grams a day, and there was 6,500 plus patients randomized there, or a matching placebo. And this was different. This was corn oil. And you may think, why did one study use mineral oil and this one's using corn oil? Well, the omega-3 carboxylic acids is actually a shade of yellow. So it's not clear. Maybe there's some oxidation going on in there. But the matching placebo that was reasonable is corn oil, which is part of our diet. So we probably don't expect any untoward effects there. The study was designed to go until there were 1,600 primary endpoints, which were CV death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, or hospitalization for unstable angina. So very much a cardiovascular event endpoint, or projected to be a median in three years. So a study design that was reasonable to answer whether the addition of the mixed EPA and DHA product reduced cardiovascular events. Now, unfortunately, this study was stopped early because it had a low likelihood of demonstrating benefits. There were over 13,000 treated patients. We see the breakdown of age and diabetes. The mean LDL cholesterol was 75, pretty similar to reduce it. The mean triglycerides was in the low 200s, a little bit higher than maybe reduce it, which was 216. And most of these patients had complete trial results. And if you look at that primary endpoint difference, it was 12% versus 12.2, which is really nothing. The hazard ratio was 0.99 with not even coming close to being statistically significant. So this study failed. So bottom line, what we know is that the mixed EPA and DHA products, the one prescription large outcome trial didn't show benefit, but the EPA only one did. So if we go back to SK, remember that patient with ASCVD and other high risk factors on high intensity statin therapy, that LDL was 60 and the triglycerides were 250. Would this patient benefit from an omega-3 fatty acid? That's what the prescriber is asking for. Well, icospentethyl, yeah, it does require a prior authorization in most insurance companies because it's an expensive product. But I'd say, yeah, it would benefit this patient based on the reduce-it trial. This patient would have been included in that reduce-it trial. And it is proven to reduce ASCVD event risk. It only contains EPA, which doesn't change your LDL cholesterol. 
As far as the other prescription product, which has an established generic that's been around for a while, which is omega-3 acid ethyl esters, I would say no. I would not feel comfortable using that one. Even though that wasn't the question the provider was asking, it might be cheaper because it's established generic. But there's no benefit that mixed EPA and DHA products reduce cardiovascular events in well-designed prospective long-term trials. That was the strength trial. So I would not encourage use of that. And I certainly would not encourage use of over-the-counter fish oils, which nearly all of them contain EPA and DHA. But even if I found an EPA only one over-the-counter, I'm skeptical of what is in those supplement products. They're not regulated like prescription medications. They don't have an FDA indication for anything because they don't treat diseases. They actually support physiologic function. And that's why the labeling is worded that way. Because of the uncertainties and because they use mixed EPA and DHA products, I would not feel comfortable using over-the-counter fish oils. And if you're just thinking, oh, why not just use something to lower triglycerides? The restraint trial reduced triglycerides. It just didn't reduce cardiovascular events. There was something unique about the icospent ethyl EPA only pathway that did that. I wouldn't extend the benefits seen with icospent ethyl to other triglyceride-lowering therapies like niacin, which doesn't show any long-term benefit, or the fibrates, which have failed to consistently show a long-term benefit. So this is newer information that really applies just to the EPA only icospent ethyl omega-3 fatty acid added to a background of statin therapy in patients who are considered very high risk. The FDA has granted an indication for icosapent ethyl in patients who look like the reduced trial. Patients with clinical ASCVD or diabetes and other risk factors who despite statin therapy still have triglycerides between 150 and 499. That is the FDA label for the icosapent ethyl product. That is not the indication for the other prescription omega-3 fatty acid, which is omega-3 acid ethyl esters. So bottom line, evidence supports icosapent ethyl in that context. In addition to a statin, in your patients have that residual higher triglycerides. I'm not convinced that triglyceride lowering is what caused the reduction in cardiovascular events, but there's something else that happened with icosapent ethyl, perhaps other effects that are hard to measure that resulted in the cardiovascular event lowering. That is my personal opinion. Some things you may be concerned about with icosapent ethyl as far as side effects you may experience in some patients. The biggest concerning one is there was a statistically higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. And that seems to occur with a lot of our omega-3 fatty acids. If you look to the long-term data, it is not a huge increase in risk, but it's something I want to keep my eye on because it has popped up in our clinical trials. Some of our key takeaways, hopefully the messages I want to share with you. One is when we look at our guidelines from the 2018 AHA ACC multi-society guideline group, these are evidence-based guidelines that look at published literature from well-designed randomized trials. They really strongly emphasize the need for LDL lowering as a primary treatment strategy to reduce cardiovascular risk, especially in those patients who are in one of the four statin benefit groups. That's where strong evidence lies. We also know that we have more tools and armamentarium of drugs to lower LDL cholesterol. The newer agents, specifically bempedoic acid as an oral agent, gives modest reduction in LDL cholesterol. But when we look at some of the subcutaneous or IV options, such as inclycerin or evanacumab, they can be more robust in their LDL lowering. Inclycerin is not yet approved, but expected to be approved by January 1st, 2022. Evanacumab is pretty strong too, but it's only indicated for homozygous FH, which limits its use for most patients. And perhaps these agents may be very helpful in combination with statin therapy. And lastly, a point that I hope I emphasized 
was when you're thinking of omega-3 fatty acids in combination with statin therapy, only frame it for patients with clinical ASCVD or diabetes and other high-risk risk factors for ASCVD. If, despite statin therapy, their LDL is well-controlled, but their triglycerides remain between 150 and 499. But the only type of omega-3 fatty acid that has the long-term evidence is the EPA-only icosapent ethyl product. I would not feel comfortable extrapolating those results to the mixed EPA and DHA products, simply because the strength trial did that and it failed to show results. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHB Official wherever you listen to your podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2021 ASHB Mid-Year Clinical Meeting. Until then, this is Vicki Basiliga from ASHB Official and thank you for all you do for your patients.